Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 64. This is the un-undisputed, everything I cannot share with you during the debate show that is undisputed. Today, episode 64, I will tell you why I'm in such awe of Snoop Dogg. I'll tell you what one word I think best describes LeBron James. I'll tell you why I have fallen out of love with my San Antonio Spurs, what's left of them. I'll tell you about why I was so shocked about the two recent sports incidents involving the public use of slurs. And I'll conclude by telling you my personal view of choking, not on food, but in and during games. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. I'm going to start with a question from you, from the audience, from Cal from Chicago, who asks, are you going to wear the Snoop Dogg chain with the chain that Wayne gave you? Good question. Uh, Cal, no, I'm not. Sunday night, I did post a badass picture of me wearing my new Snoop chain. That was after the Sixers and Suns had survived their do-or-die home games, but that was just for fun. My Wayne chain is for real. As you know, I wear it every Friday, along with all black. My Wayne chain was made expressly and especially for me, It's literally my diamond-encrusted first name, Skip. My Wayne chain is my single most prized possession. Seriously, single most prized possession in the world. He had it made for me, and my relationship with him is the most precious in my life, this side of my wife, Ernestine. I don't have any, anyone near, the, well, in my life, n- nothing approximates the connection I have other than Ernestine with Wayne. And just for the record, I don't have anywhere near that kind of connection with Snoop. Although when he does come into studio here at Fox to do Undisputed, he and I do click and vibe. We can make each other laugh. He always says that Undisputed is the show he watches every single morning. He'll say that on TV and off TV during breaks. So I do believe him. And when Snoop does come here to the Fox lot to do Undisputed, he always comes bearing gifts. That should tell you something about this man, Snoop. This time, it was a week ago this Thursday, in a Snoop Dogg backpack made for kids, the Snoop brought Shannon and me 
number one, a bottle of his signature wine. Appreciate that. And he then brought us somewhere deeper into the backpack, a bodacious death row records chain. I, I'm talking about, I don't know, a five pound chain. I told Ernestine, I think I need to do neck raises, neck strengthening exercises before I even attempt to put the chain around my neck. Now, just FYI, I glanced over in Shannon's little backpack, and I, I think there was a third item in there for Shannon, but I don't know what it was. I'm just not sure. But I thought last Thursday was Snoop's greatest ever appearance and performance on Undisputed. He was just so cool, so clever, so passionate, so insightful about the Los Angeles Lakers. He grew up loving out here in Long Beach, not too far south of where I sit right now, Fox Lot here in Southern California. Snoop this time stayed with us for an entire hour. And he and Shannon and I also had some highly entertaining and enlightening conversations off air during our commercial breaks. So please allow me just a moment to pay tribute, to pay homage to Calvin Broadus Jr., a.k.a. Snoop D-O-double-G, or mainly just Snoop. Maybe I won't tell you anything you don't already know, but let me put it in my words and my perspective, my point of view. This man is obviously an icon, a true legend, literally larger than life at almost six feet four inches tall. He's not the greatest rapper ever, but he's up there. And he just might be the most visible rapper ever, the most well-known rapper ever, because he's involved in so much more than just rap. I mean, this man is a powerhouse of energy and ideas. He's, he's this fearless dynamo multi-talented visionary who, who often sees it and plunges on it just before it hits. But do you know what I admire the most about this man, having been around him a good bit? What I admire most, as cliched as you might think it is, maybe as phony baloney as you might think it is, I admire the most how hard he works at everything he does. Snoop constantly uses the term work ethic when describing what elevates great players above just good ones. Snoop's work ethic is unparalleled. He has a thousand irons in the bonfire he continues to build. They used to call James Brown the hardest working man in show business. Now I believe Snoop deserves that distinction. They say Snoop's IQ is extremely, I'm not talking about LeBron's basketball type IQ, I'm talking about IQ IQ, real IQ, that he might even be at the genius level. And I must tell you, I do believe it. Snoop is what I once called Michael Jordan a supremely talented overachiever. Maybe you see Snoop as simply the coolest man alive. He is that. But I see him more for his extreme work ethic attached to rare instincts and guts. Now, before I go on and on and on, Yes, 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 yes. I know all about all the bad stuff about Snoop. I know about the affiliation with the Crips. In and out of trouble, in and out of jail for drug and gun possession. The murder charge represented by Johnny Cochran. Acquitted. I could go on and on and on. But I also know that Dr. Dre handpicked an unknown Snoop to be featured on Dre's first album and first single. I know that Snoop immediately had the smoothest 
coolest rap delivery I've ever heard, just me, that I've ever heard. The man never even had to raise his voice. I know all about doggy style. I know about What's My Name, Gin and Juice. I know about Rasta Snoop, Snoop Lion. I know Born Again Snoop, Bible Love. I know about dozens and dozens of TV and movie appearances. If you saw Bones, you know this man can act. I know all the shows, all the reality shows that starred Snoop. I know about the show he's done with Martha, Stu with Martha Stewart, who calls Snoop a very close friend. Martha Stewart. I know about the game shows and all the video games and the cookbooks. Cookbooks. Snoop has cookbooks. I know about the boxing commentary. Uh, I know about all the WrestleMania appearances as master of ceremonies. I know that Snoop is now the creative and strategic force behind Death Row, the Death Row he now owns. I know about all the digital ventures, the NFTs. I know about all his ahead of the curve reinventions of himself as he got bigger and bigger and bigger. I know about the commercials, about the current Corona beer commercial, Andy Sandberg. I mean, it just works because Snoop is the coolest human ever. I know about his charity work. I know about all the hours and hours and hundreds of hours he spent coaching kids football. Snoop's message was always to everybody around him, you need to ask the best, how did they do it? And then you need to outwork everybody else around you. I know that Snoop is now worth, I don't know, 200 million bucks, has somewhere around 100 million social media followers. I know that Snoop is now part of a group trying to buy the Ottawa Senators. That is an NHL hockey franchise. Hockey! Snoop and hockey. He says he wants to bring hockey to kids in the black community to provide all the right equipment and the rinks and the proper teaching, coaching. He wants to see black kids rise into hockey stars just the way we've seen so many rise in the NBA and NFL and MLB. I'm told that Snoop's group has a great shot at winning the bidding for the Ottawa Senators. Snoop is beloved in and around the sport of hockey. It's unbelievable. Watch Snoop become a huge success as a black NHL owner. Watch him parlay that success into owning an NBA team or maybe even an NFL franchise. That is his goal. I would not bet against this man. One reason Snoop loves Undisputed is that he loves the theme song that my man Wayne, my brother Wayne, wrote and recorded just for me, No Mercy. The other day, sitting live on camera at our debate desk, Snoop just suddenly sang out the money line, and I won't back down. I got chills. Snoop has told me that he believes No Mercy helped jumpstart sort of the second stage of Wayne's career, Snoop would know. I've often said that No Mercy could have been released as a, as a single, and I just believe it would have been a big hit. Of course, I believe it's the greatest theme song ever recorded for any studio show of any kind, not just sports, but any kind. In our final commercial break last Thursday, Snoop told me he wouldn't mind doing a show like Undisputed. And, and I said, daily? And he looked at me and he shrugged and there was that twinkle in his eye. And he said, why not? 
And I said, man, daily wears on you. You have to get up so early and prepare so hard to do what we do. It's a voracious beast of a show. It constantly wants more, more, more of you. And Snoop gave me a look sitting next to me at the debate desk, a look that said, do you know who you're talking to? Do I ever. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Another question. This one from Jackson from St. Louis. What one word best describes LeBron James? Good question. So the one word that leaps to my mind is flawed. Flawed. LeBron is so big, so gifted, so athletic, with such an all-time high basketball IQ, such a gift for passing the basketball, for driving the basketball, for finishing with either hand because he was born left-handed and plays right-handed. Yet, he's such a, I'm being nice, below average shooter and free throw shooter, which makes him so shockingly unclutched jacking up late threes in part because he often runs from the late game free throw line because clearly he doesn't trust himself in those late game making, game breaking situations shooting free throws. I'm always amused late game free throw situations when LeBron always opts to throw the ball in bounds, not to catch it in bounds, but to initiate and throw it in bounds. To me, the truly great ones, the Michael Jordans, there's only one of him, they want to flash open and become the recipient of the inbounds pass because they want to get fouled. They want to go to that free throw line and shoot the winning or clinching free throws. So one word, flawed. This is Robbie from Washington who asks, if you could replace Dak Prescott with any active quarterback in the NFL, who would you want? Robbie, I hate these questions. Yes, my Cowboys have a quarterback issue. I'll call it a problem. And yes, we are stuck with that problem with Dak Prescott. I hate this question because I can't replace Dak Prescott. No matter what I do, I can't do that. I, and I don't play sort of figurative fantasy football. Okay, so if a genie granted me one wish and only one wish, I'd ask for Joe Burrow. Just because I'd take him as, as a little more consistent and a little more clutch than Patrick Mahomes. But... Obviously, that is not going to happen. Dak will be back at quarterback for my Cowboys, whether I like it or hate it or not. But this time, I believe his wrongs will be righted by the best defense in the National Football League. This time, on offense, I have a legitimate deep threat I did not have last year in Brandon Cooks. I have a healthier Michael Gallup, and I have a new electric toy to go along with last year's breakout running back star, Tony Pollard, because we pulled off the steal of the entire draft 
Deuce Vaughn in the sixth round. Almost at the end of the sixth round. So, no, I don't have Joe Burrow. But I have a defense. And do I ever have weapons? Another question. This one from Andres from Arizona. Hmm. Do you miss getting to talk about your Spurs during the playoffs? Thank you for asking. Do I ever? I miss it dearly. I miss my boring old Spurs making all the ESPN experts. I used to work there. All the ESPN experts starting with my man, Stephen A. Smith, look increasingly silly. Dating back to 2004, my first year on ESPN, my Spurs won me so many bets, so many bragging rights, year after year after year. Man, do I ever miss taking our show on the road to San Antonio. That's where we debated the NBA Finals before crazed crowds on the Riverwalk 2013, 2014. Seriously, I became the unofficial mayor of San Antonio. Wherever I went, downtown San Antonio, where we were staying, restaurant, gym, convenience store, I got mobbed by Spurs fans. I love you all. I miss you all. As I'm about to tell you, I hurt for you all, but what a time that was. What a time. And now I look back at it and I say, like all great times and things, that time came and that time went. I actually became a Spurs fan back in sort of the late 70s, early 80s. You remember George the Iceman Gervin? Led the league in scoring three straight years and four out of five times, and I was mesmerized. Iceman's game was smoother and cooler than Snoop's rhymes. Oh, those silky finger rolls from the Iceman. Mm. But now for a confession. I remained a Spurs fan into and through the Tim Duncan era in spite of the coach, in spite of Greg Popovich. Tried to be a fan never got there. I interviewed Pop one time. This is one day I was a fill-in radio host on ESPN. This was back in November of 1996. Popovich was at the time the new GM of the Spurs, brought in by the new owner Peter Holt. And in that interview on ESPN radio, I found Popovich to be snotty and condescending maybe predicting his future behavior as a coach to the media. On December 10th of 1996, Greg Popovich actually got away with, pulled off, firing Bob Hill, the current head coach, and naming himself the head coach of the San Antonio Spurs. Greg Popovich had been a head coach only once. That was for eight seasons at D3, Division III Pomona Pitzer, where his teams went 76 and 129. 76 wins and 129 losses, though they did once win the conference 1986 with a record of 8 and 2. I will give you that. But Popovich managed to fire Bob Hill because the team at that point early in the season was 3-15. And, and did Greg Popovich ever get the, the break of his career? Because David Robinson got hurt and missed the rest of that season. Sean Elliott got hurt, gone. Chuck Person got hurt and was gone. Dominic Wilkins was on his last legs. And on that first Popovich-coached San Antonio Spurs team, the final record was 20 and 62. Hmm. Yet he had plenty of injury excuses. He was a very close friend of the owner 
and all of a sudden into Pop's lap fell the number one pick in the draft, which the Spurs correctly used on a player who had stayed all four years at Wake Forest, a guy named, pretty boringly, Tim Duncan. Had a kind of name that fit exactly the way he played basketball, boringly. Tim Duncan was about to make Greg Popovich just the way Tom Brady made Bill Belichick. Tim Duncan did become the most boring superstar ever, but was he ever a superstar, a top 10 all-time player? He also very quietly became, according to my Spurs sources, what they believed was the greatest leader in NBA history, a locker room force that allowed the Spurs to deal with Popovich's prickly personality and his volatile mood swings. I'll give Pop this, he did make one brilliant move thereafter. He elevated R.C. Buford from scout to GM, and R.C. did for Popovich what Gil Brandt did for Tom Landry and my Dallas Cowboys. He made Pop look like a coaching genius with two genius drafts. R.C. Buford took a French point guard named Tony Parker with the last pick in the first round in 2001 that after he had taken some guy named Manu Ginobili from Argentina with the second to last pick in the second round back in 1999. Two genius moves. Obviously, Tony Parker eventually would lead the NBA in points in the paint because he was so lightning quick that he could get to the rim before any big man could. And Ginobili in any other system except Popovich's easily could have led the NBA in scoring. Instead, he reined himself in just enough to become even more of a magical shot maker, especially clutch shot maker, than George the Iceman Gervin ever was. And finally, R.C. Buford, becoming the best GM in all the NBA, stole Kawhi Leonard by trading George Hill, George Hill to the Pacers for the 15th overall pick, this in 2011, with which the Spurs took Kawhi Leonard. Also thrown into that deal was Davis Bertans. So they got Kawhi and Bertans for George. Are you kidding? That's the all-time steal of a deal. So by 2013, Greg Popovich was coaching, not one, two, or three, four future Hall of Famers. While somehow getting much of the credit for being the coaching genius behind the Spurs dynasty. I never got it. Well, all this went straight to Pop's head. He had some Phil Jackson in him, some Svengali, some con artist, some bizarre ability to control the minds and egos of stars and superstars. But of course, Phil needed Michael Jordan to buy completely in. And Popovich needed Duncan to keep telling the locker room, it's okay, it's just the way he is. Yet Phil Jackson was not verbally abusive of the Bulls or the Lakers, and, and he wasn't any kind of an old-school hard-ass. That's Pop, that's Belichick. My Spurs won it all in 99. It was a strike year, but they broke through and won. Then they won in 03 and 05 and swept LeBron in 07. Should have won it in 2013. Thanks, Ray Allen. They did win their last championship in 2014 by a record finals margin over LeBron's heat. But along the way, Popovich got worse and worse with his verbal abuse of not just the team, the media. Slowly but surely, Popovich lost me as a fan. In post-game interviews, Pop belittled and bullied media members for, for asking perfectly acceptable routine questions. It, it was so ironic to me, Pop eventually would, would blast Donald Trump for his bully pulpit tactics. Yet, the truth was, Pop had a lot of Trump in him. Yet, Popovich's between quarters interviews on live TV on TNT and ESPN became famous instead of infamous. 
Pop became everybody's quote unquote lovable curmudgeon for shaming interviewers with one word answers or grunts. Oh, that's just Pop. He's something, that Pop. I can't tell you how many times I thought to myself as I watched those interviews, pardon my language, what an asshole. Seriously, what an asshole. What coach with, with any class or dignity would treat people like that? But he got away with it because that's just Pop. Pop's newfound celebrity just fed his considerable ego. The truth is Popovich, the former head coach at Pomona Pitzer, had the biggest ego in the franchise, much bigger than Duncan's, which made it easier on Pop to be the biggest star. Players were afraid of him, afraid of his explosive temper and his drill sergeant's ability to just shred a basketball star's self-confidence. Pop did play basketball at Air Force. He did serve in the Air Force and actually reportedly considered a career in the CIA. No surprise to me. Yet again and again, Popovich said, when Tim Duncan walks out that door, I'll be right behind him. That played great for Spurs fans, for the national media. Duncan and Pop joined at the hip. Like son, like father, till death do them part. Uh, Tim Duncan walked out that door after the 2016 season. Now, seven years later, Greg Popovich is still coaching the Spurs with no reported end in sight. So who finally exposed Popovich for what he really is? How about Kawhi Leonard? The end of my Spurs, as I knew and loved them, came in game one, 2017 Western Conference Finals. You might remember this game. Tim Duncan had just retired, but there was still a Tony Parker. There was still a Manu. Along with the LaMarcus and a Patty Mills and a Pau Gasol, Kyle Anderson, DeJounte Murray, and there was a Kawhi. That team that day was up 23 points with 7.52 left in the third quarter. Game one at Oracle, up 23. That's when Kawhi's foot came down on the oil tanker of a sneaker attached to Zaza Pachulia, or as I called him at the time, Zaza Pachipshot. He managed to plant that oil tanker of a sneaker squarely in Kawhi's landing zone. Kawhi turned his ankle completely over, turned it badly. He was gone, not just for the rest of the game, but for the series. Golden State came back to win that game, 113 to 111, and Golden State swept those spurs. And that was all she wrote. Next year, 2018, Kawhi told Popovich he had a thigh injury, a thigh issue. Pop was skeptical. Kawhi wanted to bring in his own trainer and not use the Spurs training staff. Popovich treated that trainer with even less respect than he ever treated any me media member that I was aware of. Kawhi got angrier and angrier. He played all of nine games that season, did Kawhi Leonard. Then he forced, as you remember, a trade, which became Toronto, to Toronto. In the next year, 2019, with DeMar DeRozan as my new Kawhi, team went 48 and 34, not bad. Lost in seven games in the first round to the Denver Nuggets. Then it was time to say goodnight to my Spurs. 2020, they went 32 and 39. 21, they went 33 and 39. 22, they went 34 and 48. And this year, they went 22 and 60, tied with Houston for the second worst record in the entire NBA. So obviously without Tim Duncan, slowly but surely, Greg Popovich got exposed as just another decent basketball coach. Now Pop's fate 
as a coach hinges, I guess, on the lottery. Landing the number one pick, landing Victor Wimbanyama, who I guess could put Pop back on the map in somewhat the same way that Tim Duncan did. Meanwhile, Pop weirdly has become this beloved ambassador for the NBA. Every game now ends, most of them losses, with Pop hugging the other coaches and the stars on the other team. This always drove me nuts when the Spurs were great because I didn't want to see my coach hugging rival stars like LeBron. I just didn't, I didn't want to see that kind of fraternizing. Do you really want to win or not? I, I never was sure. But this was Pop at his shrewdest. He knew even this past year that when the game ended, the cameras immediately went straight to him hugging the opposition. Oh, how he loves the love me spotlight. I'm sorry, but I never could love the coach the way I loved my Spurs. Do I ever miss Duncan, Parker, Manu? Heck, I, I even miss Kawhi as a Spur. Do I ever miss those glory days on the Riverwalk in 2013 and 14? Mm. But I do not miss Pop's post-game interviews and his between-quarters interviews. I do not miss Pop's bullying. In a way, to be honest with you, I haven't minded that Greg Popovich has been stuck in Spurs hell. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. And yet another question. This one from Baron from Buffalo. I'm down on Buffalo because Buffalo stole Dalton Kincaid for my Cowboys. But Baron from Buffalo asks, what is the process for deciding topics on Undisputed each morning? Okay, so that starts the night before around five out here Pacific time. I carefully sift through a list of stories provided by our show team as I look for topics that would work best for Shannon and me. I've usually jotted down a couple on my own from the afternoon news cycle. And then I call our producer Tyler Korn and I relay those topics with my opinions and why they might or might not work for the show. Then Tyler passes those topics along to Shannon's producer, who waits until after all the night's games have concluded to get Shannon's not only opinions on those topics, but his takes on said games. Shannon's producer sends all of the above to me, along with a, a ranking list of Shannon's interest in all of the above topics. I, I usually don't read it. I'll wait to read it until I get up at two o'clock in the morning out here, LA time. And then during my one hour run or exercise bike ride, I think about how best to order the entire show. Just think and think and think the whole time I'm watching the highlight shows and running for an hour. And all my thought process is based on Shannon's hottest buttons. And of course, on the news of the day and the outcomes of said games. It usually takes about 45 minutes to maybe an hour to plot out the 10 topic rundown. I, I love this process. I'm still not sure Snoop would. And Max from LA asks, when do you eat breakfast? if you're always cramming before undisputed? Good question. So, I do run or exercise bike from about 2.30 to 
dive in the shower. Don't live too far from the Fox lot here. Try to make it in right around four o'clock. Call my producer, Tyler Korn, who's upstairs. After the pandemic, we just do it all by phone. We just hang in there with the same process that we've used all through the pandemic. So I call Tyler from my dressing room at about 4.15, and I proceed to, quote unquote, eat breakfast on the fly as we're ordering the show. I drink a muscle milk protein shake, has 40 grams of protein, only one gram of sugar. I can live with that. I do eat a bagel. I don't recommend bagels for everybody, depending on whether you're trying to lose weight or not. But I have just had one hour of pretty hard cardio. So I'll go blueberry or cinnamon bagel, cinnamon raisin bagel. No butter, no cream cheese, just plain. And then I'll cap it all off with one 20-ounce bottle of Diet Mountain Dew, the breakfast of champions. I wash it all down with that. And I'll usually finish my quote-unquote breakfast around 4.30. And I do not eat again until after the show around 9.30. So it's about five hours. I don't eat again because I'm too keyed up and too locked in for the show my stomach's just a little too jumpy to even think about food until about a half hour after the show. Thanks for that question. Now, if you'd allow me, I'd like to talk about two words that came out of two different mouths this past week in the sports world, two evil words spoken on live broadcast that left me speechless. I mean, in, in both cases, I, I was just dumbfounded that those two words came out of those two mouths under those two live circumstances and were spoken without any slip of the tongue or any immediate apology. This in 2023, this shook me. Maybe I'm just being naive, but this blindsided me. This really got me. So allow me to try to come to grips with it. Let's take Bob Huggins first. Huggy Bear, as he's affectionately called by the many who find his old school rough edges very lovable. I never did. I do think he's a very good basketball coach. I think he's a very good motivator of overachievers who play their tails off for him and play the right way. But the other day, Huggins was doing a radio interview by phone with a station back in Cincinnati where he coached University of Cincinnati from 1989 to 2004. Obviously, he got very comfortable on said radio interview and in discussing University of Cincinnati's rivalry all those years with Xavier, another Cincinnati school, Bob Huggins blurted out a gay slur several times. Just said it gleefully in the spirit of the rivalry without any hesitation or any, gee, gee, I shouldn't have said that word. I'm sorry. Forgive me. None of that. We're talking about the gay slur beginning with F. It's, it's such an evil word, so ugly and so evil. Bob Huggins has been a head college basketball coach since 1980. He's been doing interviews since 1980. I, I guess if he'd used that slur in 1980, I wouldn't have been nearly as shocked, though I would have been just as critical. But he did know better in 2023? 
look, Bob Huggins can believe whatever he wants to believe as long as he keeps it to himself. But he's the head coach at West Virginia in the Big 12. He was born in Morgantown. He's the face of basketball at West Virginia. He's only half-jokingly said he could run for governor in West Virginia and win. Probably. He makes more than four million bucks a year to represent that school and that state the right way. He knows he can't use that word that could inspire potential hate, hate crimes. Can't use that word so gleefully on a live radio show, even while having quote unquote fun talking about an old rivalry. He knows better than that, doesn't he? Had he had a cocktail? I, I have no idea and I don't care. This is, I think, 2023. Yeah, Huggins apologized. I get it. And now, reportedly, he's expected to return to coaching at and for West Virginia after he serves some kind of suspension, takes a pay cut of about a million bucks undergoes some kind of sensitivity training. I never really respect this because I don't really believe that it will happen because who's going to keep score about the sensitivity training, but that's what they're saying. He will be back. Huggy Bear is a legend. Yet all I know for sure that I wouldn't want him coaching basketball for either of the two schools that I love. That's Vanderbilt, my alma mater, Oklahoma, my home state school. I, I just, I'm sorry. That crossed a line for me that I just couldn't live with. Which brings me to Glenn Kuyper. You might not know him unless you live in Northern California, follow the Oakland A's. I did live in the Bay Area from 2001 to 2004. I closely followed the Oakland A's. Billy Bean became a great resource for me, great interview, in some ways a friend of mine. I came to like the Oakland A's. I think I did meet Glenn Kuyper once. I definitely talked a couple of other times to his older brother, Dwayne, who's the San Francisco Giants broadcaster but I don't know Glenn, I don't really know Dwayne, but I say I don't know Glenn, so I, I have no idea what's really in his heart. I, I just know I was horrified, horrified by the word that came out of his mouth. He and his broadcast partner, the former pitcher Dallas Braden, were in Kansas City and the irony was that day they had visited the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City and Glenn was attempting to express what an honor and privilege it had been to visit that museum. But instead of on air saying Negro, he said what I consider the most evil word in all the English language, the one I wish could somehow be abolished, the one historically used by white people to condemn African Americans as, as all but subhuman. Glenn Kuyper used the N-word, the one ending with the hard E-R, used it matter-of-factly routinely, as if using that slur was second nature to him. Used it without an immediate apology, without any visible awareness, he had used it. 
this was no slip of the tongue. This, this was no mispronouncing. He just said that word on live television as if he'd used it regularly and had momentarily blanked out and forgotten he was on live TV. I'll say it again, I don't know exactly what's in any man's heart, but I certainly know what came out of his mouth. And in 2023, that cannot be. To me, that word, that word, you can't walk back. You can't apologize your way out of. He did apologize. He has been suspended. But I'm not keen on calling for another media member's job. But man, if it were my call, in conclusion, Allow me to tell you what I've learned about choking. As I said to open this podcast, I'm not talking about choking on food. I'm talking about choking late in games, especially NBA playoff games, which seem to lend themselves to choking even more than other games do. So many frantic down-to-the-wire photo finishes so many late game free throws or three point shots making or breaking said game. We talk about choking almost every day on Undisputed. Who has the clutch gene? Who doesn't? Who has the closer gene? Who doesn't? The first real insight I had into choking came out here in Los Angeles. This is soon after I graduated from Vanderbilt I was sitting in the press box of the L.A. Coliseum before a big USC football game against Notre Dame. I was talking to the most famous syndicated sports columnist ever, the late, great Jim Murray. Became a close friend of mine. Jim, whose writing was as hilarious as it was smart. I don't know how we got onto the subject, but I was asking him why he thought some athletes were better than others with the game on the line. And Jim flipped the script on me, as I'm about to do on you, and he came at it from a personal perspective. Jim said to me, look, if you put me in center field for the Los Angeles Dodgers, two outs in the bottom of the ninth, game seven of the World Series, bases loaded, Dodgers up a couple of runs, and a fly ball is hit to me, just a routine fly ball, said Jim, as he called it a can of corn, the old term for just, just a lazy fly, put it in your back pocket fly ball. Jim went on to say, for me, it's going to hang up there forever, and I'm going to drop it because I know too much. I'd be too aware of the historical magnitude of me dropping that fly ball. Jim knew if he dropped it, figuratively, just by example, if he dropped it, he'd go way, way, way down in history, down to the bottom of history. He would be forever known as the guy who dropped the fly ball that lost the World Series for the Dodgers. Sometimes, I think LeBron James with very possibly the highest basketball IQ ever, a student of basketball history, is too aware of historical magnitude, too aware of how historically bad he's been at the free throw line, late game free throw line, and the three-point line. I did cover Michael Jordan up close and personal for one year in 1998 in Chicago, the last dance season. And the Michael I got to know, observed closely, went into a competitive rage as the pressure mounted. 
Michael was obsessed with being the greatest at that moment. He didn't care anything about history. He only cared about making history. LeBron to me is sometimes painfully aware of what if I miss? Doubt creeps in. And in the very back of his considerable psyche, the demons start to, to claw and catch hold. Michael always went into this hyper angry focus, the likes of which I'd never seen. Michael's only thought was, I will. And Michael willed, willed in history-making shots. Now, if you'll allow me, two quick stories about my two earliest brushes with the choke factor. In, in basketball, as I've mentioned before, I think I peaked in about eighth grade. I grew fast. I was one of the taller kids, which helped me to be chosen athlete of the year in eighth grade at Taft Junior High School in Oklahoma City. It was a two-year school with about 1,400 total kids, biggest school in the state, junior high, and then going to high school. Baseball became my game in high school, but in eighth grade for the Taft Royals, I was pretty good. We were pretty great. In fact, our team was so loaded that we tried to schedule games with ninth grade teams for better competition. And the best game I ever played in eighth grade, maybe ever, was against a ninth grade team, all a year older than us, from, from what was called class in high school at the time, and featured a man among boys named Dick Miller. Not a first name that you hear much anymore for obvious reasons. But that afternoon, after school, seemed like it was a Wednesday, we zoned up Dick Miller, we surrounded him, we scratched and we clawed at him. And my backcourt co-star and I just lit up the Klassen Comets. My co-star was Bruce Scott, who went on to be first team All-State in high school in basketball, went on to play basketball and golf at the University of Oklahoma. But that game that day came down to free throws. They're called free throws for a reason. You get to stand there by yourself 15 feet away, unguarded, and shoot free shots that can count one point each. That game came down to clutch free throws. I'm pretty sure I made six in a row in the last two minutes of that game. I have what they call an autobiographical memory, and I can remember each of those free throws like they were literally yesterday. I can remember my three dribble routine before I shot each one of them. Taft Junior High's gym had no seats, but it had ample standing room and much of the student body would come out for our home games and just stand, I don't know, six, eight, ten deep and just turn these games into shriek fests. So the gym would go quiet as I went into my free throw motion. Then it would just explode with junior high shrieks as my free throws dropped through. But here was the point. I had no idea what I was doing. If I had known then what I know now, I guarantee you I would have missed half of those free throws. But I was the oldest in my family. I had no big brothers to advise me. My father was not interested in sports or in me. So I had no guidance, no historical perspective, no negative thoughts whatsoever. To me, Standing at the free throw line with a chance to win the game was just sheer fun. I didn't know any better. I had no scar tissue. I had zero historical perspective. 
I was just learning how to play. And it was fun because it, you could argue that that day was the best day of my sports life because I was at that time going with, as they said at the time, an older woman, a ninth grader from across the street at the high school. She had an unusual name. Her name was Gala Junk, but Gala was anything but junk. And at the, as the final buzzer or whatever we had, I think we had a scoreboard horn went off. Gayla ran out on the floor and hugged me as I dripped sweat. And I, I'm pretty sure for me, it never got any better than that or any worse than what would happen to me about four months later. So in Oklahoma City, when I was growing up, we had district track and field meets that led to a city meet, started in fourth grade, fourth, fifth, and sixth. It's called the President's Council of Physical Fitness. And one event that was very popular at that stage and age was the softball throw. It went away by high school, replaced by the discus and the shot put, but we threw the softball. And it was a big deal who could throw the softball the farthest while landing between two stakes about maybe 20, 25 yards apart. So from the start, I always had a big arm. And each year, fourth, fifth, and sixth, it was easy for me. It, it, it was really no contest for me to win blue ribbons at the city championships. But at age 14, after my eighth grade year, we had summer parks and recreation championships that were much more prestigious. My coach made me acutely aware of the city record for the softball throw. It was 268 feet, a number that is emblazoned in my psyche. In practice at the high school football stadium, called Taft Stadium, I routinely threw the softball from goal line to goal line, which would be 300 feet. I'm not sure about wind aided, maybe it was, but I could routinely throw it 300 feet. And so I became painfully aware I had the potential to break the city record. The championship meet was held, I also think, on a Wednesday night across town at what was called Northeast High School's football stadium. Started around 7 o'clock. The meet shocked me by calling my event first. We had just arrived and I was not very warmed up, if, if at all. I had to run to the starting line. And so I felt like I lobbed my first throw. But I lobbed it right down the middle, right between the stakes. And that throw was somewhere around 240 feet, well short of the record. But that throw stood up through the competition as the blue ribbon throw. So I tried to throw my second attempt 300 feet and I missed the right stake by about 20 yards to the right. No good. Disqualified. And my third and final attempt might have traveled 300 feet and it probably missed the right stake by 25 yards to the right. I just chucked it and lost it. Blue ribbon, no record. That's when my coach, Jay Stevens, came out of the crowd and got into it with the official who was running the softball throw. Jay Stevens begged the guy to give me one last attempt for the record. He's, he's arguing, you saw what he did? You, you saw how far it went? He can set this record. He could go easily 268. He could go 280. He could go 290. Let him have one throw for the record. It's, it's for his life, it's, it's the last chance. You gotta give him one more try. Well, now a whole bunch of kids are waiting on other events around the infield of the football stadium. The track went around the, the football field. All these kids, they're, they're gathering around to see what all the hubbub's about. What's the controversy about? And suddenly I was on stage. It, it felt like the whole stadium was watching me get my one attempt 
to break 268 feet. And finally, this guy gave in and said, okay, one more. And that's it. So I stood there, gripping that ball into sawdust, that softball, looking up the football field at those stakes. I stood there and I just knew, I knew in the bottom of my heart I was going to choke. I just knew it. I was too aware of the historical magnitude. And I was way too aware that everybody was watching me. One shot, do or die, make or break. I was either going to go down in history or down in flames. Even before I went into my routine, which I'd perfected, I, I didn't get a running start. I just had like a three-step routine to max it out. I just knew as I started my first step of my routine, I was going to heave that softball far wide right of the right stake. And did I ever? I choked my guts out. I was so embarrassed. I, I was so ashamed. Jay Stevens was so disappointed in me, my coach. He drove me home in silence. He knew I should have had that record, and he knew that I had choked. When I got home, it's a true story, I went straight into the kitchen, and I opened the bottom cabinet door, behind which was the trash can under the sink, and I threw away my blue ribbon. That night, I learned my first hard lesson about what it feels like to choke. That's it for episode 64. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show, every week.